Hello, this is Pat Lynch, and you're listening to the Career Pathways Podcast. Today's podcast, we are going to be interviewing Brendan Connell, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Lyon College. Brendan's specialty is global politics and global migration. And we thought that given everything that's going on in Washington, D.C., with the 370-page immigration bill now being hotly contested, that we would focus on everything in immigration, especially around our southern border. There's a lot of information there, and we have no one better than Brendan to give us all the facts and an expert analysis of what's going on. And also, just as a teaser, by the way, uh, we're also going to throw in uh, something that it, Brendan is also really great at, and that is ultra-marathoning, like 100 miles. And uh, I'll let him explain all that because it's uh, pretty interesting stuff. So thank you again for listening to the Career Pathways podcast, and we'll be with you in a moment. Hello, this is Pat Lynch, and you're listening to the Career Pathways podcast. I'm uh, joined on the podcast by our uh, illustrious team, uh, Gavin. All right, say, and way back there is producer Jason. Hello. He's back at the board. He banished me uh, from the mic yesterday to interview Luke Johnson of eSports, but he's back there making the magic happen, as always. Uh, today we have Dr. Brendan Connell, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Lyon College. And what we are going to focus today on is all things immigration. We have a bill that's just been released, 370 pages of supposedly bipartisan uh, legislation. And, uh, well, we'll get into kind of what, uh, what that's all turned out to. But before we get in and dive into immigration, Brandon, just tell us a little about yourself, kind of where you're from, your education, you know, kind of all the things that kind of got you to come here to Lyon College. Sure. So, um, so I'm an assistant professor here. I've been yep. here for almost two years now, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> it feels like I still just got here, but um, I'm from New York originally, so I grew up on a uh, a suburb of Long Island, about 50 minutes outside of the city called Smithtown. And uh, yeah, I mean, born and raised in, in New York. I really loved growing up there. I still like going back and, and visiting occasionally. Uh, Long Island gets a lot of hate, but there's a lot of neat <laughs> things about Long Island that are unique to Long Island for better or for worse. Um, but I went to undergrad at Binghamton University, which mm -hmm. is uh, a state school up, uh, not like way upstate, but like kind of just north of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So that was where I I was a political science major, so that's kind of where I started finding my love for yeah. doing research and being in the classroom and whatnot. Um, I then went to D.C., so I spent two and a half years in D.C. Uh, that was where I got my master's in international affairs, so I was going to American University, yeah. and I was um, I was also kind of doing like the think tank life, so I worked for, uh, not worked, I interned for free for a, uh, a think tank called the American security project. Yeah. Uh, so I did that for, for a bit and DC was fun. Uh, DC is still one of my favorite cities, very unique city. And 
I think while I was in DC though, I, I kind of learned that uh, as much as I like DC, I'm probably not well fit for the, uh, the suit and tie life and kind of just being in the, in the policymaking world. Uh, but I loved being in the classroom and I, and I know I yeah. wanted to teach and I love doing research and reading and all that. So I had a couple of mentors that kind of inspired me to go back to school, get a PhD mm-hmm. and, and maybe my career could be in academia and being a professor. So I went to the university of Colorado, CU Boulder which is, uh, it's famous for Deion Sanders now. Um, Deion Sanders. Producer Jason had a burning question on just that. Well, we could, we could. Go, let's go right now on Coach (laughs) Prime. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he, he, what what does he earn? He earns about, uh, he's making well over. I was just, I was going to say for like the school of Boulder, because Boulder's not like the biggest school, you know, so for something like Boulder, like to have, like if you were a student there now, how would you? Oh, I would be pumped if I was a student. Yeah, I honestly, I'd be pumped if I was still a student there as a, as a grad student or faculty. But uh, it it irks me a little bit because um, I'm just being very grumpy right now. But it irks me a little bit that Coach Prime's making like I don't know how much money. I forgot what the contract was. Million, not millions, right? Um, close, close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and. I mean, should I say like what I made as a grad student, what my stipend was in a given year and what they pay some of the faculty at CU? I mean, it just seems kind of backwards at right, times. But, right. but anyway, um, but I do like Coach Prime uh, from what I see. I've never met the dude, but uh, seems like a good coach. Seems like he's got the program going in the correct direction. And, uh, and I enjoyed my time at CU yeah. Boulder, though. So I loved – I mean, I honestly just got very lucky because I don't know what I was expecting when I got to CU, but – uh, when I got there, like there was just so many faculty members yeah. and and, um, and mentors that that kind of showed me the ropes and and made me into the the scholar I am today, which I still got, still kind of new to to academia, so right. I'm still growing and trying to publish and whatnot. But uh, yeah, just I loved every single bit of going to to CU. So I spent six years there, graduated in. 2022, and then I came here. So yeah. this was my first position. And poli sci is such a broad field. What are your areas of like academic specialty? So I do world politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it international relations or IR yep. is kind of the fancy way of saying it. Um, but that's also pretty broad. Right. So world politics. Right. Uh, more specifically, I do something called international political economy or mm-hmm. IPE. It's very fancy sounding, yeah. but yeah. it's. I, I like describing IP as like the politics of globalization. So understanding the political causes and effects of different foreign economic policies, such as um, international trade, which is the flow of goods and services, international finance, the flow of money or things representing money, and then the flow of people, international migration. My, okay. um, and I think that's kind of very recently, that's kind of become most of what my yeah. research is on. And I taught the migration course last fall as well. Yeah. So I, Kind of that's I think most specifically what I've been interested in uh, in studying and teaching as of late. So well, uh, migration. Yeah, so we got uh, something happening at the southern border of the United States. Yeah, that's, you know, got a little bit of talk, just just a touch. Yes, uh, three hundred seventy page bipartisan bill comes out of the Senate to address the Im- immigration mm-hmm. and uh, also kind of tied in Ukraine and. Israel Gaza, but focusing just on immigration, uh, you know, 370 pages is a, a lot to go through. Uh, can you give us just an overview of what that committee was trying to accomplish in terms of address 
making changes to the current immigration practice uh, so that it would improve the border situation. Yeah. So what what does the bill do first off? Yeah. Um, I guess the first thing to mention is it's actually not just purely an immigration bill. Um, it's what's called on the bus legislation, which is where you're going to lump a bunch of different things together that mm-hmm. are seemingly unrelated. So there is a lot of funding that goes to border enforcement. So that may include uh, building physical infrastructure right. such as a wall or something else, uh, as well as, you know, we want more border patrol agents, right. ICE officers, whatever. Um, there's also funding, though, that goes to Ukraine. Yep. There's humanitarian aid that goes to the uh, the to, to Gaza, right. and then there's uh, there's aid to Ukraine as well. So all this right, gets right. lumped into the to the same bill. Um, on the immigration side of things, though, so we mentioned border enforcement. Um, it's also giving it, it would give the president the authority to shut down the border. Uh, I believe the number is if undocumented flows or 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 the yeah. people moving in exceed five thousand. Is the number I saw, and it was like a, a weekly day. average or some. I, yeah, I heard some a day, maybe I've got number. A, yeah, yeah. But um, there there's some threshold yeah. though, and then right. the president can step in and essentially shut down the border. Which what does shut down the border mean? It means we're not going to grant asylum to mm-hmm. anyone. What's asylum? Asylum is you're going to allow someone to come into the country that is literally kind of fleeing for their life where right. if you turn this person away, it's going to risk their life. So these are people yeah. fleeing religious persecution, political persecution, civil war, um, abject poverty. People have different definitions in yeah. terms of what makes a refugee a refugee, right. what makes a uh, like who should be granted asylum, who should not be. But the general spirit of it is it's kind of a humanitarian right. way for letting in migrants. Um, According to, to international law and according to our own laws right now, everyone has the right to seek asylum. Mm-hmm. You can deny someone asylum, uh, and that is up to national governments right. and courts. Uh, but everyone has the right to seek asylum, and in that way, it's kind of a human right. Mm-hmm. And that's in part what this policy would change because if it hits 5,000 in a given week or day or whatever right. that threshold is – uh, no more asylum. It doesn't matter if you qualify or not. You're but is it, down is it like in for an individual, is it a one and done? So you are, you cross over, now you're in Eagle Pass and you, mm-hmm. you meet a, a customs agent, you declare asylum, but we've hit our number. That's it. And there's, there's no operation. You know, I never quite understood the, how that all is going to get enforced. Yeah. I mean, well, you, there's definitely like existing rules. I know if you get denied asylum, it's not like you can't just come right. back and request yeah, asylum yeah. again. There'll be time limits on that. But um, I mean, th- this is where it's like probably I do have to read some of the pages in this 360 yeah. page bill. <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't know exactly how it would it would work, but um, like maybe there's a queue that's set up. That would be my guess. Um, but Regardless, I think that's one of the radical changes here is you're basically saying uh, if migration exceeds a certain limit, no more asylum no matter what. Um, it also makes it so that I, bl- I believe um, – I actually might be confusing it with the, the bill in the House, but there's proposals too to make it so that you can only claim asylum at ports of entry. Right. Uh, as it stands now, where you are when you claim asylum doesn't matter and shouldn't matter. 
Right. Um, there's some that want to change that as well, though. Yeah, and and I and part of it to kind of speed things along is there the bill proposed like a, a, an increase in judges to you know be able to hold you know hold hearings so that the case backlog doesn't get so great that basically then you have to do something with these these uh, um, asylum seekers and so they get you know it's like catch and release is that the right way of saying it or uh, you know it's like it just you know but it just seemed the way I was interpreting that you, you that there's just not the legal mechanisms in place to quickly process them so then something else has to be done and many of them just enter the country waiting uh, you know a court court date when and then the who knows when the court date will be right right who hears asylum cases yeah, it's going to yeah, be judges yeah. so there's only a limited finite amount yeah. of resources for them to hear all these cases right. i mean that's why there's just such a backlog so you're waiting months maybe years to just hear am i going to get asylum right and then that creates the other controversy of well where are you physically going to be when you're waiting for your asylum case to be yeah. heard um are you going to be in the United States and just, right. okay, you know, you have to come back for your court date or, you know, we had this remain in Mexico policy as a Trump era policy right. where you can, you have the right to seek asylum and we'll hear your case. But while you're waiting, you're going to have to remain in Mexico. Oh yeah. And so that got reversed when Biden, the Biden administration took over um, or did it just was a bill that lapped, you know, had a time, time date and lapsed. The, Oh man, I always get this confused with uh, because because Biden, I th think took that away. He kept something called Title Forty Two for a while though, which was tied to um, COVID, right? That yeah, was, this is yeah. where you could turn people away for uh, yeah. public health, public emergency. health reasons. So, yeah, so that stuck around for a while, but the court struck that down for whatever reason. I'm blanking on Remain in Mexico. I think we, uh, I think we got rid of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, yeah. How is remain in Mexico? How, how does the country of Mexico look at us saying remain in Mexico? It's kind of, I, I, I can't imagine that's all that popular. No. And this is where, <laughs> uh, like nothing in the, the bill that's going through the Senate right, right now or in the, the one of the house for that matter, it's none of it is involving Mexico in any way, which is a notable admission because in order to do something like remain in Mexico, right. you need the cooperation of Mexico. It, I mean, Mexico think. is a yeah. sovereign state as yeah. well. So um, you, you kind of have to get them on board. If your goal is that we're going to turn away refugees or turn away asylum seekers and put them in Mexico, I mean, you, there's got to be some bilateral treaty in, right. in place or just even just some sort of tacit cooperation between yeah. the, the U.S. and the Mexican government. So um, Mexico has cooperated to some yeah. extent, but I don't think they're willing to just take all of the people trying to get to the U.S. and right. just have them be in Mexico. <laughs> kind of in general, the bill as it, as it is regarding immigration, if, in, if it did pass, would the border situation improve, in your opinion? Uh. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's gonna. Ah, uh, we're taking a, a positive, a real optimistic note. No, yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's going to pass the way yeah. that it is. And and if it does, um, yeah, my position is, it it's not going to be effective. So I think to understand why 
you have to look back in time and understand we've been here before. Um, the debate we're having right now yeah. about undocumented migration and the border, we've been having it for a while. We, we, for instance, had it in the 90s in the Clinton administration. It was the same sort of narrative that was being put forth to voters, which is undocumented migrants. Uh, back then, it was predominantly Mexican nationals. Right. Today, it's, it's a little bit more diverse, but same sort of thing. Undocumented migrants, uh, an invasion is the word I hear a lot right. and, and I read in the papers. And it's, it's, a, it's a threat to national culture and identity, a threat to jobs, to the economy, um, a threat to the resources, the fiscal resources of the state, yeah. all these different things. So we need to stop it. And what did the Clinton administration do? Uh, one of the things they did was, I would say, the, the, the term was prevention through deterrence, which is we're going to ramp up border enforcement, mm -hmm. which is in part what this current bill right. is trying to do. We're going to build physical infrastructure. We're going to um, make it so that there's more border patrol officers actually right. fitting, you know, manning the border. Uh, we're going to increase the penalties for if you do come here as undocumented. Um, we're going to increase the rate in which you're deported immediately, right. uh, increase detention facilities, all this stuff. And the objective, or the goals of that policy were twofold, actually. So first, if you just ramp up border enforcement, it's like, it's like fixing a leak in the faucet or in the sink. You know, it's just you physically stop more people from yeah. moving to the United States. Um, the problem, though, is you can't you can't do that. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at the border. Migrants will find a way to get in. Right. Um, so the primary objective was not actually to stop people. It was to deter people. Right. If we puff out our chest enough and we sort of show, look, you know, if, if you choose to migrate into the U.S. as an undocumented worker, you're going to have to climb three different walls and you're, you're going to get caught. You're going yeah. to be punished for it. You'll be banned from seeking asylum for X amount of years. Uh, it's not worth your while. The hope is to almost kind of deter and, and, and prevent people from migrating in the first place. So right. you don't even have to catch them in other words. Now, did that policy work? No, I, I think like it's, the evidence is pretty clear because I mean, we're still having this debate today, right? Yeah. And why doesn't deterrence work? Um, you kind of have to understand what motivates people. And, and it's going to sound like I'm going off topic, but this will be clear in a second. Um, I'm a big mixed martial arts fan. I watch the UFC and all that yeah, uh, yeah. every weekend. And uh, there's a, the former heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. He's uh, actually a native of Cameroon. Mm -hmm. And he started his uh, combat sports career boxing in, in France, I believe. And he migrated as an undocumented uh, individual across the sub-Saharan Africa uh, continent and then across the Mediterranean into Europe. And I always tell students and I tell people yeah. I talk to, go and listen to what his journey was like. Right. Listen to all the obstacles, which if, if you do listen to it, it's, it's honest, like literally unbelievable. It's like, I can't believe that this is even a thing. And then come back to me and tell me honestly, do you think a border wall is going to stop someone like Francis Ngannou? Right. And it, it, it's not. I mean, for someone like Francis Ngannou, and, and there are literally millions of other Francis Ngannous, they are moving because sometimes it's a life or death decision. They're moving to better their life, their right. family's lives, their friends' lives, whatever. And the ramping up border enforcement doesn't do anything to address those motives. Mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, we've got tons of survey data, too, to show that 
you know, you could tell or ask migrants, like, are you aware of increased border enforcement? They'll say yes. And then they'll ask them, is this going to deter you? They'll say no, because yeah. you know what? It's not even a choice. Right. I got to get to the U.S. because I'm running for my life. I mean, it, it, Francis Ngannou even described this as yeah. it wasn't a choice. I had no choice. I had to go. Well, it's also so. just complimentary of living in a country like ours that that it's so desirable mm-hmm. that they're they're coming here because there's a all other there's all kinds of other destinations in the world that they're mm-hmm. not going to, and there's a reason America and the promise America has and the opportunity America presents that it is a magnet for not just now like you know kind of you're with your you started with the history with Mexican migration, but now it's it's basically just globe. You know, it's like you know, people from Latin America, South America. Got, I even, you know, you know, Fox News because they they never miss a chance to kind of ramp up the racism. They started talking about like Chinese, mm-hmm. uh, my immigrants are now coming through the yeah. southern border, and it's it's just it's becoming kind of a global, uh, mm-hmm. a global entry point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I've, I know I've said this to you before. Yeah, but it's it's also. Um, and this will be another reason why border enforcement won't work as well as one right. think it would is you you get people that will, let's say Mexican nationals, they will fly into Canada and they could do that without a visa just based off of the policies, uh, the treaties between Canada and, the Mex- and Mexico. And then they'll come through the northern border. Yeah. And that's been in the news lately too, is people yeah. coming through like upstate New York and Vermont. Yeah, um, yeah. And so now you've, you've got you got to devote resources to the northern border, which yeah. is humongous too. And it's it's not, in, in my opinion, you can't just throw money and walls at the situation. Right. It's not. It, it seems intuitive, like that would just work in the same way that you're fixing a leaky faucet, but it it's not gonna work. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gav, Gavin has a question here. Go, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've been going on, and you've been saying that like. In your opinion, you don't think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. The common phrase, when there's a will, there's a way. Do you yeah. think there's any solution or do you have like your idea of what would make the situation better? So my solution's very simple, but I'll, I'll add the caveat. It's probably not going to happen because the politics don't match up with it. My, my solution is you need to expand the legal avenues for immigration and, and greatly so. Uh, the way that our immigration policies are set up now forget about border enforcement for a second. We we have essentially quotas and how many individuals we let come into the country in a given year. And those caps we put on migration are much lower than the demand to come into the country. And the unmet demand is what ends up becoming undocumented migration essentially. So if you could find a way to expand the amount of legal avenues to come into the country, uh, all that undocumented migration would turn into legal migration. Um, and legal migration, you could monitor more. You know, we don't just let anyone come into the country. There are security checks and whatnot. There's right. a process. So that's what I would do is I would just expand the legal avenues for migration. And I, I hear this a lot where uh, I, think, I think most American voters will say, I'm not against immigration. I just want them to come here legally. And I understand that sentiment. I, I think I agree with that sentiment because I, I like rule of law. I think you need rule of law and people to follow the rules for democracy to work. But I think if you're going to make that statement, you also need to be cognizant that 
there is no way for a lot of people to come into the country legally right. because of these caps we set up. Um, we only let in a certain amount of uh, labor or workers come in to give visas or, or legal permanent residents. We have this diversity visa lottery system, which is kind of what it sounds like. There's literally a lottery system where we will randomly dish out um, visas to people, typically from poorer countries that don't traditionally send migrants to the U.S. Yeah, and it's an insanely low number, too. It's insanely low. Yeah. And, yeah. and so now put yourself in the shoes of a migrant or, or someone that's trying to get into the United States, um, probably not going to win the lottery. Maybe even if you do get yeah. a visa, the queues for these are so long. So sometimes you're waiting yeah. years just to kind of get into the country or I'm going to take my shot and I'll go across the border. Yeah. So um, that would be my answer is you expand the legal avenues for migration and you'd have to do it greatly, uh, which brings me back to what I said before. I don't think that'll be done anytime soon because what political scientists know about public opinion is voters do not like open immigration yeah. policies. Um, they are not very gung-ho about opening borders, whether it's undocumented right. or documented. So I, I don't foresee a president of either party yeah. um, coming into the White House and saying, let's open the borders to legal migrants. Well, so. yeah, but it, like in kind of what you propose, I would, I would – if I had to frame it, I'd frame it more as being something that uh, the, the Democrats would be more – open to and that the Republicans would adamantly oppose not, and kind of reverse that. What would be an immigration policy that in your, your opinion that Republicans would support? You know, they, cause it's this finger pointing, it's your problem, it's your mm -hmm. problem, but okay, now it's their turn. They have a chance to make changes and, and fix mm -hmm. the, the border in their mind. What would they do? So I, two things to say here. Uh, the first is I actually don't think there is a lot of partisan difference on immigration. Really? Now, I know, yeah. I understand there yeah. you've got this part of the Republican Party that is very much, you know, defend the border and whatnot. Right. Um, I know this is the Trump stance, but I actually think Democrats are just as averse to immigration as well, because mm -hmm. again, we go back to voters. Both parties have to respond to what voters want or don't want. Right. And I just think immigration policy, I mean, people generally do not want to accept more migrants. They either want to keep things the same or they actually want to close the borders further. Yeah. Um, okay. That said though, how would I get Republicans, Democrats, everyone on board? Right. Um, I have my own little solution here. It's, it's not, this isn't just my idea, but you do have people, including the Trump administration, actually proposed what's called a point system. Mm -hmm. So the way point systems work, uh, this is the way Australia does it. This is the way New Zealand does it, a couple other countries, where in order to allow someone into the country, they have to accumulate a certain number of points. Right. And how you get points is maybe you need to uh, – be able to be proficient in English. Right. Uh, you need to have a job in place already. Um, you, you could assign points however you want. I mean, there are some countries that literally do it. If you live a or, or win an Olympic gold medal, you get like some absurd amount of points. There right? you go. So, yeah. so you could do it however you want. Um, and in truth, I think point systems are not radically different from the way we do things now. But the advantage about point systems is I think you could sell it to voters. Right. Because you're selling it 
at least as is kind of like a merit uh meritocracy yeah, yeah like like yeah. It, it, it's it's a merit-based merit, way yeah. of letting people in yeah. um which which maybe that's not necessarily true i can make arguments about yeah, why yeah, point systems yeah. could be right. manipulated and whatnot but I'm just thinking from the perspective, if I was running for office and I needed to sell my policy to voters, I think point systems is one way to do it. Yeah. And Trump's come out and tried to say this himself, that point systems might be the way to go. So maybe that's the answer is not just opening immigration policy, but um, trying to kind of alter how, like who we're, we're letting yeah. in and, and, and the, the types of migrants we let in. And, and there's a whole debate with that too, but that's at least one idea and a way yeah. to maybe get some compromise and to make yeah. this a politically viable solution. What, um, like, could in theory, like, okay, so I know this is like a national, but like, could in theory, like, a state elect be like, hey, we'll bring um, like immigrants per year or whatever and they try to get this, like, states, do the states actually have the power to be like, we want to bring in a bunch of immigrants? For example, like, I know like Minnesota had a lot of, <clears throat> where I'm from, we had like a, a big group of Somali people come in community because Minnesota was getting like the Somali people, a lot of benefits for coming, getting citizenship and coming with visas. Could a state, in theory, be like go to the national government and say, "Hey, we'll take up a certain amount of, you know, immigrants per year and help them get visas, and we'll just keep, you know, yeah. recycling that program"? Or is that something that the federal government has? To, you know, states, states could do it. I mean, states could lobby and petition for this stuff, but ultimately, it's going to be the federal government's call and these different federal bureaucracies that deal with this. Um, you know. I mean, you, you actually have not states, but I mean, private actors, corporations that they want to bring in cheap labor. Uh, they want to bring in migrants. And that's a whole nother story is most special interest in this country actually want to increase borders because that's labor for them to use right. and they can make uh, products at cheaper prices. Um, so they can petition and try to get, uh, I mean, there's even been companies that have petitioned to get their own visa category to open just create a new visa category and let people in that way. But, but again, it's the government's call ultimately though. They don't have to listen to special interests that they don't want to. Right. Um, regarding like Minnesota, I mean, I know Minnesota is like a big spot for Somalians, um, the Somalian diaspora and, and, and even things like refugees. But again, who controls refugee policy? It's a, it's a federal thing. Um, yeah. Since 1980, it's been controlled by re really the president actually sets the cap on how many refugees to let in. So Minnesota can, presumably ask Biden yeah. to do this, but... Do you think if, like, let's say, like, the roles were reversed from, like, Texas to California, say, like, the California policy towards Texas is now, do you think the border crisis would be like this? Like, if they were more liberal, mm -hmm. left-leaning than, than Texas is? If California was Texas, yeah. um, like would the border crisis places. be worse? I don't think... I don't think it would be any different, because, uh, again, I, I actually don't think it's a left-right issue. Mm -hmm. Um... Look, if you, if you ask most voters, do you like open borders, people on the right will tend to be in favor of restriction more than people on the left. But I still think even if you look at the left and if you look at Democratic policymakers, um, they're, they're not really calling to just drastically expand borders and, right. and to let in undocumented migrants. I mean, there are certain issues like the dreamers, so giving a path to citizenship for people that are here and if, if uh, not committing any crimes that are right. students and good standing citizens. And there, there's maybe a little bit more parson divide on these things at times, but um, just based off of my research and what yeah. I see, I, I think the partisan divide on immigration is not as stark as people think it is. Interesting.
Um, yeah. yeah. Is there, with, you know, we're, there's all the talk about just people that are arriving at our southern border now, but we mm-hmm. have millions mm-hmm. that are in the country right now. What is the pathway to citizenship, or is it, does one exist like that you can apply, and then it may take ten years, but you you can eventually gain citizenship, or mm-hmm. is that even just non-existent? Um. Yes. So, well, if you if you come here and you're a legal permanent resident for. Uh, what is it? I think it's 10 years is the yeah. residency requirement. Yeah. And then they, you've actually got to take this exam to show that, you know, the constitution mm-hmm. and whatnot. I mean, there, there's that way. Right. Um, there's just being born on us soil, which is, these are yeah. the anchor babies as yeah. they're called. And, uh, that's another way to get citizenship. But if you're referring to you know people that are right. here undocumented, I think that's something we're still trying to figure out is if you've got someone that's here and they are an undocumented migrant, but they are working there or they're going to school mm-hmm. or they, they, they haven't committed any, any crimes. Right. They're, they're not, um, do we grant someone like that citizenship? And maybe you do because, yeah. um, don't you want that individual to be a member of society or do right. you want to just live two different worlds where yeah. there's just this population below yeah, like a shadow your citizens, population. Yeah. right? So. Um, this is still what we're figuring out though. I mean, this was yeah. the, in part the dreamers debate, um, which and that's pretty much done. Isn't it? It, there, there's nothing like that in the current <laughs> legislation. And I don't think it's going to be in any time soon because yeah. it, it seems like the pendulum has now swung to yeah, yeah. a lot of people demanding restrictions, um, yeah. on, uh, on both sides of the aisle, probably. I mean, even Biden he he talked this game in the twenty leading up to twenty twenty yeah. about how he was going to reverse a lot of the Trump era policies, and that didn't always prove to be true. Yeah, and and again, I think this goes back to Republicans and Democrats are actually not too different on this. They tend to behave the same, mm-hmm. and I think even Biden understands if I just take this position where I'm going to give the dreamer citizenship yeah. and I'm I'm not going to take any measures to to solve the border crisis, I'm not going to win election in twenty twenty four. So, yeah. um. Yeah, Biden's in a in a tough position right now leading True. into the, yeah. the next general. You looking like five, ten, twenty years out, uh, and you look at the demographics of this country, you know, birth rates you mm-hmm. know, are low. We may even have a declining population, which would then lead one to believe that immigration could be something very beneficial. Yeah. Uh is there any talk or any any forward thinking on that, or is it just everything is in the moment? Get to the next election. You know, I got to get through the next election. I mean, what what what's going on there in your mind? Well, I, I think uh, I think there's like unequivocal answers that come out of academia and, and a lot of like the yes. econ literature shows that uh, there's a lot of good that comes from migration, mm-hmm. even undocumented migration, but immigration in general. Um, and a lot of the, the supposed costs to immigration are not maybe there at all. They're a lot less right, than people right. think. So I would say a majority of economists, and this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse because I'm not an economist, right. but I, I had to teach this stuff last semester for my migration class. And right, so I've, right. I've read a lot of these, these papers that are just digging into the data. 
And I think the consensus is that immigration is like a, a potential boon to the economy. And you right. mentioned the, the aging yeah. population of the U.S., the Democrat, demographic deficit that we have of, let's take like social security, for instance. Right. You know, how are we going to pay for the baby boomers and these the aging population? Hello. We, we, we don't have a lot of young workers anymore. Come on right? in, guys. Yeah. So, so you bring in people that are young, healthy, working. You get them citizenship right. so yeah. that they're, they're getting yeah. into jobs and they're paying taxes. And then you use that tax money to fix the problem of Social Security being bankrupt. I mean, that's one example of immigration oh, yeah. being a potential was, good thing. I was talking with Nicholas Patillo, our director of international education, and he was talking about the, the economic impact that international students have. You know, and it's like across the U.S., it's in the billions. And just Arkansas alone was $140 million mm. that they bring with tuition, room and board, you know, shopping it within the local right. market. And so, you know, that's, that's just one small sliver as far as that, because you think about many, many people that are, that are not here legally, they, you know, chances are they're not paying into the, you know, the taxes, like you, you know, so all the, that right. tax revenue is just, you know, just not, not there. And right. uh, so wouldn't it, you know, w wouldn't there be a net benefit now? Of course, that's all academic. And then you get into the emotion, I guess. And that's when yeah. everything kind of. And, and, and <laughs> I think, up. I think the, yeah. uh, the media probably plays a role here too. You bet. In yeah. that, um, I, I teach this to my students all the time. It's like, it's a much like, it, it's a much like more trendy, provocative title of an article to say invasion, like migration invasion, and to talk about, to, to basically like, yeah. you, you get into people's like fears and anxieties, you kind of stoke that stuff, versus no one's going to publish in, in, the, in the front page of a, of a newspaper, migrants contributing positively to the economy. It, it's, it's like non-news almost. Right. Um, right. And that is the thing about the way media reports things. They, and they do it because they want to get viewers. So I don't blame yeah. them. But um, oftentimes good news is not like, or, or good things that happen doesn't make good news. Oftentimes the bad news and the stuff that people pick up and read is like, again, invasions and, and, and yeah. all, this, all this bad stuff. So I think for that reason, a lot of voters, a lot of policymakers, they just have an altered perception of the true effects of immigration. Right. Because again, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be like the radical lefty here and say yeah. that there's no cost at all to, right. to immigration because there are, in some situations, it does maybe become a zero sum game. Right. But I think more times than not, again, if I'm just going off of the literature that I've read and just quantitative research and what the data says. I think there's way more good that comes from immigration than bad. Um, it's just that that's not what you read in the newspapers, unfortunately. Okay, so yeah, it hasn't quite hit FanDuel yet, but okay, now you're, here you are, and you're gonna <laughs> put, you're gonna place a bet on this legislation. Uh, yes, uh, kind of. Uh, what bet are you gonna place? Well, I guess we got to talk odds, though, right? <laughs> because right now the odds—I mean, it's a—it's a prohibitive right. line, probably, because I don't right. think many people 
uh, are, are predicting this is going to pass. Well, they're going to have a teaser, try and um, pull you in, you know. To... Yeah, so there, it's going to be a juiced up line to vote that this bill is going to pass, in which right. case maybe I'll, I'll go with that bet. Right. I'll, I'll put yeah. down a dollar and hope to make a million. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, I, I don't I don't think it's going to pass. I mean, I mm-hmm. think what's happening now is there – it doesn't make sense for – especially kind of like the Trump style Republicans to support this bill. It doesn't matter what's in this bill. They're not going to support it because right now they got Biden in a corner in a good situation to say, look, he's totally failed on the, on the border. And and why would you give him a way out here? Uh, In addition to that, we mentioned that this is an omnibus bill and there's all different things in it. There's also a lot of Republicans that, uh, are reluctant to to continue the aid to places like Ukraine, for instance. Right. Uh, there's just like this yeah. isolationist element uh, amongst American voters right now, especially Republicans. So uh, between those those different things, yeah. I, I just don't think the support's going to be there because you need 60 in the Senate, and then you got to get through the House. And yeah, which so yeah, yeah. Well, this is the Career Pathways podcast, so we have to kind of shift gears and talk careers. Uh, Gavin, do you have a question on that? Uh, yeah. Um, what can you tell us about uh, careers in the political science major? Anyone looking to get outside and, you know, get their dirty hands wet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for political science, obviously there, there's the political type jobs you can mm-hmm. do. So you can, I mean, D.C. is a really great city. So I have a lot of students I work with that you know, they, they want to go work and, and make policy, whether it's they want to go work for the government. That's obviously one thing you could do with a political science major. Um, you can, uh, go work in the, the, like, like think tanks and and NGOs that aren't really the government, but they kind of do their own research. There's different types of think tanks and whatnot. Uh, you could go work for international organizations. Um, United Nations is one of the most popular ones, but there's, there's tons of international, um, or intergovernmental organizations. So all that stuff exists, but I think what people maybe don't realize is there's a lot of non there, there's a lot of jobs that have nothing to do with politics right. that political scientists are very well equipped for and i i think a reason for that is over the past let's say two decades or so political science for better or for worse has become an increasingly quantitative discipline and by that i mean it's not just people talking about theories and right. and even being political political scientists are increasingly using big data and they're using statistical software to mm-hmm. do hypothesis testing, which is like the same thing that a natural scientist, a chemist would do. Um, it's, it's way more systematic and quantitative than it used to be. So you get skills as a political scientist that are kind of can translate well to, to other um, types of careers and jobs. So, for instance, you know, Facebook and, and Google and, and Amazon and, and all these different like big tech companies are actually, you know, employing political scientists because they know that political scientists, again, they could use statistical software. Yeah. They're they're good with dealing with data, um, and they're they're looking for data scientists. Uh, political scientists, we could write well, um, or hopefully you could write well if you, if you get a political science major. And, and writing is a very rare skill that's desirable in any sort of right. career. So, um, yeah, I mean, I my, me myself, I, I know I've got people that uh, used to be friends with, or still I'm friends with that. They, they started as political science majors, but they're doing something very lucrative that has nothing to do with politics, and yep. they're, they're living a great life right now. So it's not just political jobs yep. that a political scientist could do. It's, it's a lot bigger than that. So um, 
yeah, just just I think political science gives you a lot of those generalizable skills, writing, uh, data, and all that, which is which is good. Okay, is there like a you talked about uh, being a political science major? You don't have to like do anything in politics really. Like you don't have to go in that direction. What is I would say a bizarre uh, job field that you've heard that a political science scientist has gone into? Oh boy. I mean, I could talk about me because my job before Lyon <laughs> College, I was I was working at UPS for a while. I was working at um I was a middle school track and field coach. Um actually, well, this so I'm not I'm not being a good uh spokesman, I guess, for political yeah. science. I was working in between jobs <laughs> before I went back to get my PhD. Right. Um let me think though. I mean, what what's like a an odd job that I've seen political scientists do? Um I can't I mean, I mentioned like, you know, Facebook and, and working for big tech companies. I know a few people that have gone in that direction. But you, you get um, into so much consulting, poll, uh, professional polling, you know, the you know talk stuff, about yeah. matching up poli sci and data. You know, there all these, these you know, you could be with um, what from a Nate Silver 538 mm -hmm. to any mm -hmm. of these other really, really specialized polling. You got. You think about uh, just how crazy uh, a dis how when a party takes over a state and how they redistrict the state and it's you know these turducans of uh, districts now that are all yeah. based on data you know mm -hmm. and, I, and it's and that's all po it has to be all yeah. you know, kind of people that have a knowledge of uh, poli sci because they're digging in and looking at the demographics and everything and. Voter mm -hmm. preferences and trying to, I guess, rig it to their advantage, yep. and then hopefully it, pat, it the courts don't blow it up. Sometimes yeah. they do, but yeah, that's all poli sci. Yes, it's anything with data. Like yeah. I said, anything yeah. with data, which is most things nowadays. Right, right. Um, even things like I, I'm sure marketing. I mean, if you're trying to sell a product and you want to know yep. what advertisement works better, why not devise a real experiment of some sort where you can kind of get a sample, a representative sample. You could devise sort of, okay, here's a control group. Here's a treatment group. You apply the treatment to one group, control group, it's nothing. You get the data on who's going to buy the product. Oh yeah. You run some models using Stata or R or any statistical software. Political scientists can do that. And so and an election is like the ultimate marketing. Uh, you know, when you think right. about it, you got a winner loser. Right. And so was your marketing effective in the end, did you get elected? And and gosh, you look at like the way they segment voters, like soccer moms. That's a term used in marketing as well. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's like a soccer mom has this type of prep political preference. But okay, yeah, there. That's the person that's that's going to be you're going to look at with certain type of food products. You know, the minivan or the you know SUV. On and on and on. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. they there's a, a, a a whole lot of crossover. Yeah. Even, even the generation yeah, stuff, yeah. right? We got Gen Z, you got the oh, millennials, yeah. you know, and that's all made up, but it's also not made up because the consumer preferences of those groups are different and you can measure that. Well, so. it's just, when you think of 320 million people in the U S that tried to market to every one of them individually, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. So then you find ways to categorize them. Hmm. Some may be overly generalized, but, yeah. You, know, you can do the, just that. Yeah. Got one 
other dramatic change of gears, and we have <laughs> to talk to you about ultra marathon. Oh yeah, let's. This is the fun stuff. This is the fun. <laughs> let's this go. Is the, yeah, this, this is this. the this is the payoff, listeners. <laughs> but uh, tell just how did you get into uh, ultra marathoning? And well, first, just even tell uh, uh-huh. like everybody listening what ultra marathoning is and then kind of your story in terms of how you got into it yeah so ultras ultra marathons is like a very broad category but anything over a marathon essentially um tends to be 50 k's uh 50 milers there's 100 k's 100 milers and then there's like really gnarly stuff there's like 200 milers there's (laughs) all, all sorts of crazy stuff which i haven't done any of that yet uh what do you even call that a 200 mile um, Run. they'll, they'll just call it a 200 and then they'll, they'll, <laughs> okay, okay. there'll be a specific name right, for right. whatever the invitational yeah. is or whatever the meet is. But, um, yeah, so, so that's what ultra running is. It's just running for something that's longer than a marathon, right. which comes with its own unique challenges. Cause it is, it's, it's like running a 5k and that they're both running, but it's also very different. The pain is different. The strategy is different. So, uh, but that's what ultra running is. How I got into ultra running still ask myself this question sometimes. Um, I, I guess, I, I mean, I've been running all my life first right. off, like my whole adult life. And then some, you know, I, I ran in middle school and high school and college. And then even after college a bit. And I, I guess when ultra running started was actually COVID. Cause oh. when COVID happened, it first off, there wasn't anything to do. Yeah. So I remember just thinking like, I might as well take advantage of this and do something somewhat productive and healthy. So I'll, I'll focus on running because running's a thing you could do where you could still social distance right. and whatnot. Um, so I got more into running. I got serious into training. And at the same time, there's no races, you know, for like a good year or two, there's mm-hmm. no, uh, there's no track meets, there's no road races or anything. So after a while, it's like, I'm doing all this training, but I don't have like any way to show off and see like how fit I am. Right, you know? Like I want right. to go out and try to run a personal best in something. and so. What I ended up doing and what a lot of runners started doing was running what are known as FKTs, which stand for fastest known time attempts. Mm -hmm. And they're exactly what they sound. You kind of find like a trail or a segment of some sort and you just try to run it as fast as anyone's ever done it. And you record it on like a, like a GPS watch. So that's how you verify like this is indeed the fastest time. And you, you upload it to Strava, which is like social media for endurance athletes. Anyway. FKTs, they were becoming more popular. And there was one on, uh, on Long Island, my hometown, where my parents' house still is, called the Suffolk County Greenbelt Trail. And it goes from the North Shore of Long Island, so it's like the Long Island Sound, all the way to the Great South Bay, the South Shore. So it's right. like a really cool trail, because it's like, I get to say, I, I literally ran the, the yeah. length of Long Island. Yeah. And it's about 50K, though, so it's, it's an ultra in that sense. And there was a bunch of local runners that were that were trying to do it, and they kept kind of breaking down the FKT. And one day I was just like, you know what? I've got a couple weddings on Long Island during this time. Uh, before I go to these weddings and bachelor parties I had lined up, I'm going to go home. I'll, I'll train for two months, and I'll just take a stab at it, and I'll do the, right. do the FKT. And, and long story short, I did it. I had my friend come out. He, was, he handed me bottles and food along the way, which is another challenge of ultra running. you got to yeah. be eating a little bit. And... Uh, and it was fun and, and I got the FKT and, and I remember just being like super pumped and, and kind of being like, uh, not only was this fun, but I, th- I think I could do this, you know, yeah. like I think I'm actually good at this and it's always, it feels good to be good at something, yeah. you know, so it makes you want to do it more. 
And then uh, a couple months later, I actually signed up for my first race. It was a 50 mile route in Utah. And then the rest is history, as they say. So, I've been How many ultras since. have you run? I've only done five plus that yeah. FKT. That's it? Yeah, only five, oh, only yeah. five. Um, and, and I don't, because there's just, there's some people that are just so gnarly though. I mean, they'll, yeah. they'll be racing every month. They'll, they'll be doing some sort of ultra. Yeah. Um, I can't do that. My body will break down. So I only, usually like once or twice a year. So try to do. You're in a, you, okay, you start a race and now you have a hundred miles to go. What, what do you go through stages? Like, you know, yeah. like you, you hit a wall or you hit multiple walls, or mm -hmm. what? Kind of walk us through what what's it like when somebody takes on something like that. Yes, it's um, the the analogy. Then this is not my analogy, but ultra runners say it, it's like life in a day is what a hundred miler is. Okay, in the same sense that you know your life is ups and downs, right? No day is ever the same. Yeah, You've got good yeah. days and bad days, and I've only run one hundred miler. That was the the Arkansas Traveler I did. Yeah. Uh, back in October, but based off of that experience, there are moments in the race where I feel like I can't miss. I feel like I'm never going to get tired. I feel like yeah. I'm the best runner in the world. And then there's moments where I'm just questioning why I'm doing this. Why am I out here? Yeah. I'd rather be eating pizza and drinking beer, watching <laughs> UFC. Um, I'm I'm questioning how am I going to finish to the point where I, I literally don't even know how I'm going to finish. Like yeah. it, it really seems that dark at points. And then there's all shades of gray in between. Yeah. Um, but the, the interesting thing too, you kind of learn from experience is it, it's, it's so weird how you could sometimes within the span of like 15 minutes go from the lowest point in the race to all of a sudden, like the highest point yeah. in the race. Um, the, I ran the, the finger lakes 50 miler a couple summers ago. And, uh, I think it was like mile 45 or something. Uh, so I only, only had like five miles to go, but I just started, uh, I don't want to get too graphic, but vomiting up my food and I was just stumbling. And yeah. I remember there was even, uh, I could see the look on the eyes of the volunteers. I don't think they thought I was going to finish. And I just tried to walk it off. And then literally like two miles later, I started running just like the fastest pace I'd run the entire Whoa. race. And yeah. you just snap out of it. And it's just very... It's one of the cool things about ultra running. It's yeah. just such a up and down. And that's why, you know, just being yeah, mentally yeah, tough in those, yeah. in those moments and understanding I'm not always going to feel this bad. If I could just push through this wall and find, uh, and get, get out of the tunnel, I'll be, I'll prove, be fine. Yeah. And that just, just proven to yourself that, that what you could go through just yeah. to make our, all our listeners just feel a little, even more inadequate that they can't even run a mile, but uh, you're, <laughs> 50 mile race. What do you average per mile? Um, it's dependent on, on the course. So yeah, I'll, I'll just like take, um, terrain and everything and weather. Yeah, yeah. I, I did a, um, in, in Arkansas, uh, about a year ago around Thanksgiving, I did, um, it was actually a, uh, like a six hour race. You go yeah. as far as you can in six hours. But I remember I wasn't going to run all six hours. I was just like, I was run 50 miles and then I'll step off, yeah. which I did. And I think I was, uh, like six fifty pace, and that, but that was like that was a flat six six mile. minutes. It, it was just it was a mile a mile loop each mile. Uh, yes, on average, yeah. yes. Oh wow! So, <laughs> yeah, Gavin's ready to beat that. You know? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's no, that's that's but, that is so impressive. Yeah, I, you know, you, cause, yeah, I just yeah, I'm, 
you know, just even be able to run one mile at that pace for an average uh, person, you know, that's just not achievable. And to uh -huh. sustain that, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. One, one thing I will say, though, is, um, yeah. because I mean, everyone's got of, of different talents, and there's tons of ultra runners that could just kick my butt. Um, but what I will say, especially to the listeners, is, like, you, you can do more than you think you can. Because yeah. I hear it all the time. It's like, I'm just not good at running. I could never run 50 miles. I could right. never run 100 miles. Um, I encourage you to go watch an ultra and see some of the people out there and, and what they're doing and talk to them. And, and a lot of them will say, I, I never thought I'd be doing this. I mean, yeah. even me, I never thought I'd be running a hundred miles ever. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking that after I ran the hundred miles, I mean, it made it feel that much better. It's like, I, it's very easy to sell yourself short. Right. Um, so, you know, if you think you can't do something, um, you probably can do that something. It might take a lot right. of work, but but yeah. don't sell yourself short, whether it's running, whether it's your academic career, your your career goals, professional career. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of life lessons I've I've learned from ultra running that apply everywhere. And I try to tell that to my students and people that are willing to listen to me. Awesome. <laughs> there could not be a better way to end this. There um, we go. Yes, Thank you, Brendan. Of course. This, my this pleasure. is an awesome, was awesome conversation. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Gavin. Thank you, Producer Jason, back there. And uh, thank you, listeners. This, uh, this is Pat Lynch signing off for the Career Pathways podcast. As always, we always close our uh, podcast out by, as a reminder of where can you find the Career Pathways podcast and who has that answer but Producer Jason. Let us know, Jason. You can find the podcast almost everywhere. Um, you can find it at 99.97% places as much as it actually makes it up. And he's researched that thoroughly. Yeah. <laughs> so once again, thank you again for listening to the Career Pathways podcast, and we'll have a, another show for you next week. Take care.